the Mystical Underground and Rob McGregor present an audio production of Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings. Indiana Jones and the Staff of Kings is a novel I wrote in 2008 that was based on the script of a computer game by the same name. Earlier, I had written Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade based on the movie script, and after that I wrote six original Indiana Jones novels for Bantam Books and Lucasfilm, set in the 1920s at the beginning of Indy's career as an archaeologist. The original intent was to publish this novel with the release of the related game. That didn't happen, and I'm not going to go into the reasons. The point is that I've been repeatedly assured by Bantam Books that they have no interest in publishing the novel. So to that end, I see it now as a free fan novel, which I will read in a series of podcasts. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. 1. Temple of the Cosmos, Darien Jungle, Panama, October 1921. Like a moth attracted to fire, Indiana Jones followed the glowing torch through the jungle. He'd heard there were guaqueros, grave robbers, in the area, but he was shocked and angry that they dared to dig while the expedition was working at the site. He figured with any luck, he could drive them off by himself. He might be unnumbered, so they wouldn't know it. It would surprise them, and they'd flee into the night. He hoped Professor Kingston, who had organized the expedition and brought along his top grad students, would appreciate his bold effort to protect the site. They were all excited about the chance to explore an unknown Mayan pyramid hidden in the jungle of southern Panama, far from the Mayan centers of power in the Yucatan, Guatemala, and Honduras. It would be groundbreaking work in more ways than one, but it would be heartbreaking if the site were looted the night before they entered the pyramid. According to native legends, the pyramid, known as the Temple of the Cosmos, housed an enormous planetarium that was triggered to life by a mysterious jade sphere. However, if Guacaros made off with the sphere, it would disappear into, into the antiquities black market, where it would probably fall into the hands of a wealthy collector who would consider it an ancient oddity, a curious anomaly, like a crystal skull. But an anthrop- from an anthropological point of view, the jade sphere was far more valuable in situ, in other words, if it was linked to the pyramid and the planetarium. Indy continued down the path, moving closer and closer to the flickering light that bobbed like a giant firefly through the jungle. He wasn't sure what he would do when he confronted the grave robbers, but he would improvise. However, there would be only a couple of them. As he neared the enormous pyramid, covered in vines the size of his thighs, he crouched low and crept forward. He'd first notice the torchlight when he'd awakened around midnight, his bladder full and climbed out of his tent. The bastards had walked right by their camp as if to dismiss their sleeping competitors as unworthy. Indy paused as a shadowy pyramid came into sight. Moonbeams filtered through the thick canopy, draping the edifice 
illuminating the green-encrusted crown. The jungle buzzed with nightlife. The eerie call of an owl suddenly echoed through the jungle, followed almost immediately by the yelp of a howler monkey. The shirt of insects provided a constant background rhythm to the night. Nearby, a low, deadly growl, possibly from a panther, issued from the darkness. A chill snaked up his spine. Indy jumped, looked around, and scrambled ahead. He stopped in an open area they'd cleared in recent days. He scanned the site, searching for the light, for any kind of movement. He noticed a glow emanating from the nearby base of the pyramid. Not good. Not at all. They'd found the entry point. The Gokeros must have been hiding in the jungle, spying on them. Yesterday, Kingston had directed his eager crew to cut out a couple of base stones. They'd spent the past two days carefully drilling and chipping away at the edge of the stones until they'd been able to move them out. Tomorrow they were going into the pyramid for the first time, but now it looked as if Indy were destined to enter it tonight to stop the looters. He hitched the whip on his hip. It was a hobby he'd picked up as a teen and had perfected with long hours of practice, turning the whip into a weapon, an extension of his arm and legs, a means of expanding his ability to jump over open spaces and even climb walls. He'd taken his share of kidding for carrying a whip at an archaeological site, but Professor Kingston didn't care as long as he didn't do anything stupid with it. Right now, it was his only weapon besides a knife with a three-inch blade. He hesitated, not knowing who or what he'd find inside the pyramid. A loud, angry cat scream accompanied by a thrashing in the nearby th thicket behind him propelled Indy to the pyramid. He tugged on his new fedora, then crawled through the opening, more willing to face a human enemy than whatever creature lurked in the night. The smell of dust and age, combined with sooty odor of a torch, filled his nostrils. His nose twitched as he tried to avoid sneezing. He cautiously stood up and pressed his back against the wall of rock, blending into the thick shadows. He could feel the cold of the rock against his leather jacket. There was just enough light so that Indy could make out a corridor along the inside of the wall of the pyramid and also steps leading downward, directly ahead. His attention was immediately diverted to the left, where someone moved slowly along a narrow corridor, torch in hand. The man about twenty feet away paused a moment, looked back. The torch illuminated his features, and Indy held back a groan. It wasn't Uncle Keno. It was Magnus Bohr, a fellow student. Bohr, a German national, considered Indy as chief rival for Kingston's attention and approval. He was both brilliant and aggressive, and more than willing to undermine any attempt by Indy to surpass his intellectual acuity or physical prowess. No doubt that Bohr was thinking ahead, plotting his way to the top, to be first among Kingston's heralded grad students, then into the archaeological world at large. Indy, for his part, considered Voller an annoyance, far too rigid in his ideas. While Voller was committed to archaeology, he tended to relate everything back to Germany, making connections no one else fathomed. He also was appalled by Indy's behavior with co-eds and the general debauchery on campus. Indy figured that Voller was frustrated by his inability to attract the interests of the women on campus, but it was his own fault. 
what with his formal manners, aloofness, and a certain arrogance that everyone, not just the co-eds, found tedious. He felt like snapping his whip around Voler's legs and yanking his feet out from under him. Voler knew as well as he did that Kingston demanded that everyone adhere to his protocol. That meant teamwork, following orders, and definitely no midnight freelancing. But Voler just had to get the jump on everyone else, especially on Indy, and apparently he was willing to cheat to achieve his goal, Indy thought. If Voler could locate the Jade Sphere tonight, he could promptly discover it in the morning. Surprise, surprise. However, now that Indy had spotted him, Voler's little nightmare excursion could get him in serious trouble. All Indy had to do was turn around, head back to camp, and wake up Kingston. At the very least, Fowler would be banished from camp. At the worst, he would probably be expelled from the program. Given the opportunity, Indy knew that Fowler would do the same to him. But Indy didn't like the idea of tattling on his competitor like a little kid. Fowler stopped and cocked his head to the side as if he heard spirits of the ancients whispering in his ear. His face was illuminated, expression drawn with worry. And he quickly moved up to him. I'd be very careful if I were you. This place could be booby-trapped. Fowler spun around, his features frozen in surprise and shock. Then he caught himself, raised his lantern jaw, and peered imperiously down on Indy. What are you doing here, Jones? That's my question. I'm just following you. I am not here to steal anything, if that's what you think. Of course not. But what are you doing? Taking a midnight tour? Yeah, sure. You know, I like to be first. I came here to prepare for tomorrow. I want to find the Jade Sphere. And he moved closer to Voler. If Kingston found out that you were in here contaminating the site, he'd send you back to Berlin on the next boat. Listen, Jones, you are here too. You are as guilty as I am. We both contaminate it. Let's work together. We can share the glory. We will find the sphere tonight and then discover it again tomorrow for the professor. Fuller knew he was in trouble, so he was bargaining, trying to draw Indy into his plot. I'm not very excited about sharing the glory with you, Magnus. I'm leaving right now, and you better do the same. But you're going to owe me a favor. Come, come, Jones. Where's your sense of adventure? I'm saving it for my next girlfriend. Come on, let's go. Bowler sighed, shook his head. You are pathetic, Jones. And he heard a scraping sound from the far end of the corridor. Rats? You and the others were supposed to push the stones back in place, not leave it open for any sort of creature to crawl in here, Voler said. And he remembered that Voler had retired early after Kingston had said they wouldn't be entering the pyramid until morning. I got news for you. We did put the stones back. Well, they were pulled out when I got here. I don't think rats did it, and he said in a high voice. Let's go take a look. They moved cautiously along the stone floor, Fowler following Indy, with the torch held high, illuminating him like a slowly moving target for whatever awaited them in the darkness. They reached the end of the corridor without encountering man, beast, or artifact. Older now, Fowler swung the torch from side to side as if fighting off an invisible enemy. Indy ducked as the flames grazed the side of his head. Take it easy with that thing, Magnus. You're burning the hairs in my ears. Besides, it might go out, and I don't like the idea of being here in the dark. There's nobody here, Moeller said. Then who moved those stone blocks? As if in answer to his question, 
They heard the scraping sound again, but this time it was louder. They turned, and Ibdi spotted an opening in the floor near the wall. As they edged closer, he noticed a dim glow emanating from the subterranean passage. Ibdi pointed to a notch in the wall above the opening. Leave the torch up there. We'll surprise whoever it is. I'm not a fool, Chos. Fuller jammed the torch into the wall. Clearly, he didn't like Indy giving him orders. Indy touched his index finger to his lips and crept down several steps. They followed another long, narrow passageway. With each step, the light grew brighter. They stopped as the corridor opened into a circular chamber. The sarcophagus filled the center of the chamber where four men, garbed in filthy, tattered clothes, were slowly pushing the carved top of the stone tomb to one side. Grave robbers, Oler hissed as he moved past Indy. He was about to approach the Guacados, but Indy grabbed his arm and jerked him back. Blur angrily yanked his arm away, but then saw that Indy was pointing at an exposed pit. They leaned forward, looked down, and saw a bloodied man, probably one of the Guacados who had fallen onto wooden spikes protruding from the holes in the floor of the pit. Indy noticed the pit was big enough to accept a couple more unwary explorers. One of the looters spotted them, shouted to his companions, and rushed toward them, waving a machete. When he stopped on the opposite side of the pit, Indy snapped his whip and snapped the machete. The weapon dropped into the pit. Another of the looters hurled a, a knife, and it sliced into the shoulder of Indy's leather jacket. Hey, that's a new jacket, fella. Fuller, meanwhile, moved around the pit and traded punches with two of the Guacados. He was holding his own against smaller men who started to retreat. A big German grappled one of the men, hauled him upward, and abruptly tossed him into the pit. The man's shrieks echoed through the chamber, then leaked out, leaked away, punctuated by gurgling noises as he choked on his blood. Fuller grabbed the other of Carol and hurled him headfirst against the side of the tomb. Indy heard a distinctive click, like a gear engaging. A grinding sound followed. Fuller laughed, then kicked his legs in a weird dance and shouted, Come, you little bastards, I'll kill you all. Take it easy, Indy thought, astonished by how Fuller was enjoying his savagery. In his exuberance, Fuller lost track of where he was and suddenly slipped over the edge of the pit. He caught the rim with one hand and dangled in mid-air his breathing loud, frantic, panicked. Indy lunged, grabbed onto Voller's free hand and struggled to pull him up. Voller's eyes widened in terror. Behind you, here they come. But Voller wouldn't let go of his wrist and Indy couldn't defend himself. At any moment, he expected the Wakatos to shove him into the pit. To his relief, they raced past him toward the entrance of the chamber. The men crawled beneath a stone barrier that was slowly descending in the doorway. He dug his heels in, pulled, and forward clam clambered out of the pit. Hurry, before we get trapped here, Indy snapped. Fuller met his gaze, glanced towards the tomb, and Indy read his thoughts. They both leaped up and scrambled toward the tomb. Inside, a skeleton partially covered with the remains of a tattered shroud held the jade sphere. Indy lunged for it, lunged for it but Fuller tried to pull it away from him. They lifted it away from the skeleton, still struggling over it. The grinding sound reminded 
Indy of their precarious situation. Hey, I thought we were working together. Yes, you are right. Fulmer released the grip of this, on this, his grip on the sphere and slammed his fist into Indy's jaw. The sphere slipped from his hands and rolled across the stone floor, heading directly towards the pit. Fuller dived, caught it just as it was about to tumble over the lip. He laughed, scurried towards the entrance and rolled beneath the stone door. But at the last moment, his knee struck the sphere and it slipped from his grasp. Indy scooped it up, saving it from the, again from this, from the pit. Roll it here, quick, Fuller demanded. We'll get you out. Come get it. The barricade closed with a thud. Fuller's muffled voice reached him through the wall. Too bad, Jones. We might never find what happened to you. You might become an artifact yourself. I never did like that guy, Andy muttered. Now he heard another grinding sound emanating from the opposite side of the chamber. He carefully skirted the pit and found the torch to Gokeros left behind in their haste. He held it up and spotted a second arched doorway on the opposite wall. Another stone barrier was sinking down. Indy dropped to the floor, crawled under it with the sphere. He leaped up and cautiously moved forward. He followed this, a steep passage that led into a corridor. Eventually, it took him back to the hole through which he'd entered the pyramid. Fortunately, Borer hadn't bothered pushing the stones back into the wall. Indy tucked the sphere under his jacket, slipped through the opening, then made his way back to camp. When he arrived, torches were lit and several people were moving about the camp. He spotted Volert talking in an animated fashion to Kingston. He moved closer until he could hear the conversation. Jones and I followed the looters into the pyramid, but they surprised us and killed Jones. I barely escaped. This is terrible, Kingston said. Where is his body? I do not know, Herr Professor. I saw them dragging him by his feet into the jungle. No, that's not exactly how it happened, Indy said, stepping forward. My God, Indy, Kingston shouted, you're alive. Indy reached into his jacket, extracted the jade sphere, and handed it carefully to Kingston. I think this is what you're looking for. We saved it from the Guaqueros. But I don't understand. Magnus said, I know, it's complicated, but I can sum it up this way. He turned to Voler and slugged him in the jaw. Chapter 2 on Campus, Barnett College, January 1939. Indy was seated at his desk in his small cluttered office, a stack of papers in front of him, and puffed on a pipe as he read a freshman paper, a tortured attempt to link the biblical flood with the destruction of Atlantis. As he finished, he flipped to the cover page and jotted, First we need to document the existence of Atlantis before we can connect religious writings to its destruction. A for imagination, C for factual support. He'd asked the students in his introductory archaeology course to be bold and speculate on any aspect of ancient civilization and then to back it up with facts. They were great on the first part, weak on the latter, as this paper in the last dozen he'd read revealed. He still had more than a hundred to read. A tap on his door interrupted his reverie. Come in. A good friend from the museum stepped inside. Hello, Indy. Afternoon, Marcus. What brings you here? I was just on my way to a meeting, but decided to stop by and convey some quite interesting news. Your old colleague, Marcus Voller, has a, an exhibition at the American-German Cultural Center in San Francisco. It sounds quite interesting. It includes bricks from the Tower of Babel, P. 
pieces of Jacob's ladder and ancient military artifacts from the bottom of the Red Sea. What do you say we go take a look? It could be quite interesting. Indy adjusted his tweed sport coat, then took off his wireframe glasses and dropped them on the pile of papers. Marcus Brody was like a second father for Indy. He was intelligent and engaging, honest and straightforward, the best sort of friend and associate. Under different circumstances, he would have enjoyed traveling to San Francisco with him, but not this time. Sorry, Marcus. He waved a hand towards his desk. I've got papers to grade and a lecture to prepare for the Biblical Archaeology Society meeting coming up. Besides, Marcus Voller is not one of my favorite people, and I don't care for the people he's working for either. Oh, I understand that. I just thought that this would be a good opportunity for the two of you to make amends. He's become quite influential, you know, and you have so much in common. You could help each other. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Sorry, Ben, but I just can't run off at a moment's notice anymore. Of course, of course. I just want to pass along that tidbit. Looking forward to your lecture. As Brody walked out, the new department secretary, an attractive young woman who tended to distract Indy from his work, entered the office. She stood erect, shoulders back, her sweater tightening across her breast. Indy made an effort to focus on her smiling face. Hello, Janine. Telegram for you, Dr. Jones. All the way from San Francisco. Really? He reached for the envelope, but she held on to her end of it. Is this a tug-of-war? No, but I just want to say that I think you need to relax more. You're always working. There's a party tonight. Then I thought you might... Janine interrupted. I'd love to go to a party, but I've got papers to grade. Such dedication, she pouted her lovely mouth, blunt plunging at the corners, then smiled. All right, but you can call me if you change your mind. He watched the sway of her hips as she walked out of the office. Hey, maybe next week, he called after her. He opened the telegram. Professor Jones, troublemakers po poking around, asking about Kingston in the Jade Sphere. Need your help. Come quick. Archie Tan. He lowered it, stared at the stack of papers, then reread the telegraph. It was a surprise. Yet it wasn't. He'd known that someday a message from Archie Tan would arrive and he would fulfill a promise he'd made years ago. The timing wasn't exactly to his liking, but San Francisco was calling. He pushed away from his desk, abandoned his office. As he passed Janine, he called over his shoulder. I'll be in San Francisco for a couple of days. Tell my teaching assistant that he's in charge until further notice. I thought you were busy, Dr. Jones. I am. He reached for the door, then paused. And if Marcus Brody asks about me, just tell him I went into hiding. Not a word about San Francisco. My lips are sealed. Is this a scholarly matter? He nodded. Very. San Francisco, when the time comes for you to carry on my research, don't expect that you'll remain in the classroom for long. You'll have your work cut out for you. Unfortunately, it'll also mean that I died. Charles Kingston, from a note to Indiana Jones, October 1931. Three, Chinese New Year. He trudged through the gates of Chinatown and into a festive gathering and stretched for blocks. He wove his way through the crowd, passing costume lion dancers, acrobats, floats, and a marching band. Red paper lanterns, colorful streamers and flags hung from balconies above storefronts, and a huge inflated dragon 
Large enough to swallow a Studebaker bobbed its way down the middle of the street. Indy didn't need a calendar to figure out that he'd arrived in San Francisco on the Chinese New Year. But he wasn't in the mood to join the celebration. He needed to find Archie Tan as soon as possible. Years ago, Indy had promised Professor Charles Kingston, one of his mentors, that if Archie ever needed help, he would go to his aid without hesitation. Kingston had introduced him to Archie, and the two had gotten along well. Archie was a loyal friend and occasional colleague to both men, even though he was an old stalwart figure in this shadowy and sometimes nefarious world of San Francisco's import-export industry. Archie availed their archaeological expertise from time to time when artifacts came his way, and in return Archie helped Kingston in certain secretive dealings. Kingston never explained to Indy the nature of that business, but had suggested that one day Indy would find out. When Kingston mysteriously disappeared several years ago on an archaeological expedition in Nepal, Indy had been immersed in another research project, one involving the Ark of the Covenant. Upon hearing about Kingston's demise months after the fact, he'd immediately contacted Archie Tan. But Kingston's friend had offered neither clues nor resolution to Kingston's apparent murder. He'd also remained mum about his dealings with the professor. Now, however, Andy suspected that Archie was about to reveal the story of that partnership, and who knew what else? Indy worked his way through the crowd and paused when he reached an opening. He noticed everyone was watching him and pointing at his feet. He sniffed an odor of sulfur, looked down to see an S-shaped blue snake with a thin trail of smoke coming from its tail. Just a toy, he thought, then it exploded, leapt and twisted as a string of hidden firecrackers discharged. The crowd roared as Andy danced away from the contorting plastic serpent. Chinese New Year. Great timing, he muttered, shaking his head. A couple of blocks later, he turned the corner away from the crowd and headed down the narrow street. He stopped at Archie's address, knocked on the door of a row house. A girl who looked about 13 answered. Behind her, Indy glimpsed more festivities of preparations for a large family dinner. The girl smiled. Guanian. Indy remembered that the word meant Glad you made it through the old year. But he had to think a moment to remember the proper response. Banyan, he answered, which meant congratulations on the new year. My name is Jones. Indiana Jones, I'm Susie Tan. My grandpa Archie told me about you. Yeah, I'm looking for him. The girl's features darkened. But we don't know where he is. Maybe you can help find him. A hand reached over the girl's shoulder and she was gently moved aside as a middle-aged woman appeared in the doorway. Can I help you, sir? That's Dr. Jones, the one Grandpa talks about, the girl said before Annie could reply. The woman shook her head. If you're looking for my father, he has disappointed his family. He disappeared on one of his mysterious trips right before the New Year. He left without a goodbye. The girl's head appeared between the doorframe and her mother's arm. She gave a quick shake of her head then moved away. Thank you, madame. Bye, Dian.
As the door closed, Indy glimpsed a red paper banner hanging in the hallway that read, Fulk. Yeah, Fulk. Ironic, he thought, as he turned away. It meant fortune, but sounded like a curse spoken with a Chinese accent. Indy headed deeper into the back alleys of Chinatown and away from the parade, the faint drumbeat of one of the marching bands echoing behind him, then fading. He focused on recalling the location of Archie's shop, a place he had visited a couple of times, but not for several years. The hair prickled on the back of his neck and he glanced over his shoulder. A man who walked with a limp and a cane trailed after him. Indy was certain he had seen the guy near Archie's house and quickly turned the corner, hurried down the street, and ducked into an alcove. As soon as the man appeared, he would confront him. Maybe he knew something about Archie. A few seconds later, he heard footsteps, an exchange of Chinese, then three young toughs, tongue thugs, he suspected, walked past, accompanied by the older man with the cane. Indy decided they were probably more interested in bugging, mugging him than providing information. When they were out of sight, Indy slipped out and moved quickly down the street in the opposite direction. He'd gone a couple more blocks when two more thugs stepped away from a doorway and blocked his path. They both pulled out formidable-looking knives. Not a good idea to go asking about Archie Tan, one of them said. He was burly and wore a sleeveless vest that revealed a dragon tattoo snaking from shoulder to wrist. The other one, a wiry, muscular man, grinned, revealing a silver tooth. You scram or we cut you bad. Maybe we cut you anyhow. Hands on hips, Indy carefully fingered the snap holding his whip in place beneath his leather jacket. The thugs came closer, their knives whistling through the air. The sight of the knives reminded Indy of a stray fact about the Chinese New Year that he learned during a fling with a co-ed from Hong Kong while an undergrad. You know it's bad luck to carry a knife or even a scissors on the Chinese New Year. You might cut your luck for the year ahead. Aha, you're very funny, Silvertooth said, but we don't believe those old grandma tales. He does, and he nodded towards Dragonarm, who had lowered his knife. Silvertooth said something in Chinese to him, and he took advantage of the moment. He unfurled his whip, and before he could react, lashed it around the of both men. He jerked hard and toppled over, crashing into each other and slamming into the ground. Dragonarm dropped his knife, and Indy kicked it away as he shook the whip free. Silvertooth bounced to his feet, cursed Indy, and lunged at him with the knife. Indy chopped his arm with the hilt of his whip, and the knife clattered to the sidewalk. Indy tripped him, shoved his knee into the thug's back, and wrapped the whip around his neck. Dragonarm, meanwhile, retrieved his knife and stomped forward. Indy pulled the gagging Silvertooth to his feet, and used him as a shield. Indy leaned forward and hissed, tell him to drop the knife or you've taken your last breath. Indy let up a moment and Silvertooth spat a few words. Dragonarm tossed the knife aside. Indy released Silvertooth and pushed him forward towards his buddy. The men faced Indy again as if they were preparing for another round, but when they saw him raise his whip, they backed, they backed away, turned, and raced down the cobbled street. As they disappeared into the darkness, Indy called after them. Bonnie and... 
Indy hurried away before the thugs found more of their kind and regrouped. He weaved through the streets, past strings of paper lanterns, putting distance be between him and the thugs. He slowed when he recognized the tea house from his last visit. Archie's shop was located three doors down. No need to knock. The door hung slightly open. He pushed it gently with his foot, slipped inside, and stood quietly in the dark listening. The place was silent, not even the scratching pattern of a scurrying rat. He struck a match, held it above his head, revealing a shop that looked like it had been upended by an earthquake. Display cases of goods were gutted, everything tossed about. A desk had been tipped over, the drawers dumped, their contents strewn across the floor. A file cabinet had been emptied, files hurled everywhere. There was hardly room to walk. He found a light switch, flipped it on. A bare bulb hanging by a thread from the ceiling flickered on. He scanned the mess, shook his head, muttered, Life on the rough-and-tumble Barbary Coast. Where are you, Archie? As he stepped past an unturned desk, he kicked a shoebox of papers that spilled to the floor. He pawed through them, but found nothing of significance. As he stood up, he glimpsed a ceiling fan lazily circling overhead. He looked closer and saw something taped to the underside of one of the veins. He pulled a chair under the fan, stepped up, and snagged a piece of paper. It was folded in half, and his name was written on the outside. He read the brief, hastily scribbled note. Indy, Star of the Orient. That was it. No explanation. Had he been interrupted, or was that how he intended to write? Maybe Archie had gotten into trouble over an artifact or a diamond. But what did that have to do with Kingston and the Jade Sphere, the subject of Archie's note? Archie certainly had friends right in San Francisco who could help him. No, the reason Archie contacted him dealt with the past, with Kingston, and there was a reason he needed to get involved. He heard a creaking sound. Someone was standing by the door, just out of sight. He jammed the note into his pocket, reached for his whip. The tong thugs must have tracked him here. He started to move toward the wall, hoping to surprise whoever it was, but he tripped over on an overturned file cabinet, crashing to the floor. Are you all right, Dr. Jones? And he lifted up on his knees. A dark-haired girl poked her head inside the door. He stood up, hiding his embarrassment. Susie, what are you doing here? Does your mother know you're here? She stepped into the shop and didn't seem surprised by the mess. I snuck out. My grandfather didn't want my mother to get involved. She worries too much. But he told me you would, you would help him. Where is he? Before she could answer, the door banged open and three men in trench coats burst into the shop, weapons drawn. Tell us too, young lady, said one of the men speaking in a German accent. He wore a brimmed hat low over his forehead. We want to talk to him about an important matter. Susie started to bowl away, but two of the men caught her. Indy rushed forward as she fought to free herself, but was stopped by the muzzle of a revolver aimed between his eyes. Another step and you're dead, Jones. Oh, you know me. I don't think we've met. Stay out of the way, Professor. You end up dead, like Kingston. That's all you need to know. Let me guess, you're Gestapo agents and you're working for Magnus Fuller. That figures, Indy said. 
Susie screamed, struggled. One of them clapped a hand over her mouth, and she bit hard into the soft tissue between thumb and forefinger. He howled, releasing her, waving a bloodied hand, but the other man held her firmly and stuffed a rag into her mouth, silencing her. Let her go, Indy shouted. She's a kid, out past her dead time. Not until she talks. The Gestapo agent kept his weapon and his gaze aimed at Indy while he talked to the girl. Show us where your grandfather is hiding this Jane Sphere. Then we will let you go. Susie tried to say something, but it sounded as if she were talking underwater. The man motioned for one of his cohorts to pull out the rag. She asked for her ear. I'm, I'm not telling you Nazis nothing, she spat. You tell us now, or your friend dies. But I don't know anything. I count to three, then I kill Jones. One, I don't know. He would never tell me anything like that. Two, no please, don't shoot him. Three. Across town, Magnus Voller stood in the wings of the stage as the director of the American-German Cultural Center chatted at the podium about the center's activities. Eventually, he would introduce Voller to the crowd of dignitaries from San, the San Francisco art and political world. As he waited, Voller thought about how his personal history had brought him here. Disgusted by the humiliation of his country in the aftermath of the war, he'd eagerly joined the Nazi party upon his return to Germany. He was fascinated by the Führer's search for religious artifacts, but infuriated that the job had been handed to a Frenchman. After the Ark of the Covenant incident and the Holy Grail episode two years later, that one under the auspices of an American expatriate, Magnus finally took over the position. His Nazi superior, Heinrich Himmler, gave him the title of director of the project. Under his control, defense of German antiquities had become one of the most powerful departments within the SS. He reported directly to Himmler and could draw on the resources of the regular army, the Waffen-SS, and the Gestapo to accomplish his goals. After securing several biblical artifacts, bricks from the Tower of Babel, pieces of Jacob's Ladder, Dead Sea Scrolls, and fragments of the Septuagint, Oler was now focusing on one of the truly sacred artifacts, the Staff of Moses, and the trail had taken him to San Francisco. While he is exhibiting his biblical discoveries, his men from the Gestapo were busy hunting for another artifact that his old professor had cleverly used to hide his secrets. One way or another, Voller would find this staff and claim it for the homeland, whatever it took. One of his aides came to his sides, whispered in his ear. Voller smiled at it. Dut, dut. Very good. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. 
send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. Thank you.